Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. Today's tremendous episode is with my friend, Mr. Patrick McCowan. Patrick is a world-renowned expert on all things breath and the way it impacts with our, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our physiology. Uh, he's the writer of the best-selling book, Oxygen Advantage, and he is one of my, I think, my favorite thought leaders in this conversation around breath. It's a valuable topic, and uh, that's what we get into in this conversation. Imagine that. Uh, we get into uh, his book, Oxygen Advantage, and the effects of nose breathing uh, and the value of leveraging our breath as the tool that it is for performance, for relaxation, for sleep, for pretty much anything that you can do as a person comes back to breath. Uh, so that's what we get into. I hope you guys devour this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning into the website, alignpodcast.com, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com. On there, you can start the five-day movement challenge, which breaks down five fundamental, simple exercises everybody I have in their daily experience and uh, people have been loving that people have been commenting on that and I just so greatly appreciate y'all's feedback and support I'm glad you like it uh, so onlinepodcast.com A-L-I-G-N podcast.com um, I wanted to thank Blue Blocks for supporting this podcast. Blue Blocks is some of the steeziest blue blocking glasses that you will encounter. I recommend utilizing them at least like an hour, 45 minutes, say two hours uh, before going to bed. But before you go to bed, if you're exposed to blue light in your home, or I, I especially use them when I'm traveling, uh, that's like big time if you're in airports, you're in random Airbnbs or something like that, or hotels, you don't have control of the lighting situation. I use those things. It is an absolute must-have for me anytime I go on a trip, and I recommend it being a must-have for y'all. Um, so you can go to blueblocks.com slash align, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash align, and you get 15% off of your purchase on there. You can get both daytime or nighttime blue blocking glasses help benefit your sleep reduce stress levels and become a more wholesome human being um hope you guys dig those guys and i think we're ready to go back to the show with patrick mccowan all right enjoy align podcast <laughs> how do you say your last name mccowan mccown 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 yeah that's perfect mccown yeah yeah you're Irish. Yes. Born and raised. Born and raised. Oh damn. What's how's the Irish culture compared to American culture? I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, it's different in terms of yeah, I suppose it's it, it's it's difficult to put it into perspective. I think there's a lot of similarities, and then there's some differences there as well. Yeah. Um, what are some standout differences? I think some of them are, I don't know, I don't think we're as kind of as commercially driven. Right. Um, I think we make more time for life and not as opposed to working, living to work. We're working to live. So I don't think there's as much competitive pressures. Um, I think we have a little bit more cushioned in terms of healthcare and things like that. University is free. Healthcare is free. It's not always perfect, but it's there. Yeah. So I think there's a there's that that net that safety net is there. Uh, I think I don't know. You know, 
Um, but then we don't have the weather. We don't have the the sometimes the infrastructure. We don't have the resources. So, what do you think of the 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 source of that contrast is in American culture? Why why are so many people more commercially driven? I think it's because the people who came over here in the whatever time the 1700s, the 1800s, yeah. you attracted the most um, resilient, brave um, people who wanted to make a change in their own life. People who had the re- not the resources, but the the in te- the intelligence or the want to to achieve. So you have a lot of immigrants coming into a country. Usually, that country attracts the best people from other countries. The laggards stay behind. You know, the guys who who are happy and content with their their state of life, they stay there. But the ones who want to make something for themselves, they move. So you've got one country is attracting so many people from all divergent divergent con- cultures. And all with that kind of interest in mind, then you're putting them together. And I think that's what's driven the commerciality of it. And then, kind of the dark side of that is... Well, I think there's competitive pressures because people have to work hard to spend more money. And people are spending more money on stuff they don't really need. Yeah. And the whole driven, like, what's success in terms of economy? If the economy is doing well, everything is successful. Yeah. But should it be measured on the amount of sales and consumption... And we also have to bear in mind is how is this spending, how is it financed? Is it really financed or is it is it true borrowings? So are we spending now and going to pay down later down the road? Um, so ITF, it's, listen, no country is going to be absolutely perfect. No country is perfect. Every country has issues. Um, and it's just that the issues will vary from one country to another. Yeah, there's like a, a kind of like a, a, a silly joke about people in LA when you're out to dinner with somebody they're always kind of looking over your shoulder to see who might be coming <laughs> in the door it's like oh, is that, <laughs> you know it's, instead of ever actually truly being present with what's sure. in front of you it yeah, seems like yeah, that's yeah, yeah. kind of analog to like what you're expressing in relation to mm-hmm. the country as a yes, whole it's like oh we're yes, the beginning yes, of that of like yeah. screw this yeah well I place. think the whole of western society the whole of western society are who who is really present yeah. you know when do you hear it when do you ever hear it being talked about is it ever talked about in schools is it ever talked about in church was it ever talked about in sports was it ever talked about in the media like the only people who were talking about presence were people around the fringes of society yep. um, but yet how come 95% of society have missed the very one thing that life is all about and that's being present and connecting with life as opposed to being stuck in the head, as opposed to being stuck in a screen, as opposed to being um, driven mainly by um, commercialization and spending and marketing and advertising campaigns. Um, you know, like the promise of happiness by buying the new BMW, does it work? People are up to their necks in debt, you know, and as a result, they, you know, that there's that tension and there's that kind of anxiety in paying for it and you're working harder and uh, get the big house and pay your big house off for the next 30 years and now you have to really work hard because if you don't work hard you're going to lose your house so almost a great idea by whoever pulls the strings of motivating the human being get them all up to their necks in debt so they have to spend their entire life working and then they die and I know that's a very cynical way of talking about it but there's some realism there as well Um, so I think it's about having that balance I think it's about having the balance of being connected with the present moment, being connected and living the life, and also enjoying life in terms of the comforts that modern life has to offer. And there can be some fun meeting a star, 
so fun meeting somebody who's famous, um, but not letting that consume you. And bear in mind, if we're watching and spending too much time on social media, reading magazines, reading these entertainment, watching these entertainment programs on TV, we begin to see that there's a perception of life, that life is all about happiness and seeing all of these famous people doing really well, being very happy, getting what they want, living in beautiful houses. And that's putting a lot of pressure on normal people to try and achieve that as well. So young kids, I see my own daughter, she's nine, and she's fascinated, you know, looking at the YouTubers and the beautiful houses that they have up in Beverly Hills. And I'm only hoping that she thinks, I'm only hoping that she doesn't real, she realizes that this is only a minor segment of life and not everybody is going to ever live like this. And she's only seeing only what those YouTubers want to portray, you know, that kind of way. So where's all the truth in this um, in terms of the information that's being put out there? And that same information is the information which society sees as, sees as sacrosanct. You know, it's the, the famous people get all the attention. But do we really want the life of the famous person? Yeah. Seems like <clears throat> you've done Vipassana. I have. Yeah, yes. me too, man. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of yeah. that and like the stripping away of everything, which yes. increases your bandwidth to focus on the things that you truly always will have. Yes, yes, you know, yes. We, we, our bandwidth goes out to all of the material things that could be taken away at any time. And so our sense of, of, of joy or well-being or happiness is based upon this up and down yo-yo market yes yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know so yes. it's, it's kind of interesting that, like I, I think that's an interesting idea that we only have so much bandwidth that we can that we can put out to certain things and so when you actually take away material it forces you to focus that bandwidth within yes and if you can do that develop that emotional intelligence like we were talking about before we started recording mm -hmm. then it's like you have the responsibility to start to tack on the materials and not yes. become the materials yes yes you consume for your pleasure as opposed to the addiction of the consumption and yeah. um, i think the passion for passion is wonderful it's a time that you know you have nothing in your pockets you don't have a wallet you don't have car keys you don't have a mobile phone you you're carrying nothing you're no distractions there's no communication with any other being, either, you know, through speaking, even eye contact. Like, there's literally nothing. So you, even with the mind, noble silence of the mind for the 10 days, not that the mind is completely silent, of course, but at the same time, that's what you're working towards. We never give ourselves that attention. And taking 10 days out of one's life to fully give our own being attention. And our, our ancestors would have done this. Can you imagine, throughout evolution, um, we would have hunted as men for periods of time, but then we would have stillness in the environment that we were in, connecting with the life around us. We don't have that anymore, um, or at least it's significantly reduced. Now, of course, there's a, there's a, there's really a you know a trend towards it happening again. It seems that we're doing full circle. You need to make a choice. We still yeah. have it. It's just now you need to consciously seek exactly. it out. Whereas before you were of it, there was no other choice. Yes, yes, you, you were, were of it, it or you will die. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> now it's like separate from it, yeah. integrate into you yes. know the 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 new the new zeitgeist. And, yeah, yeah, you know, and you can kind of operate in that. But now you actually have to make the conscious choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Where does breath come in this conversation? Well, breath is one you if you have your focus on the breath your attention is out of the mind but another aspect of breath is the connection that breath has with sleep um, so if you have f good functional breathing and slow breathing 
there's a tendency that the mind is going to be calmer and quieter. Mm-hmm. You can also improve or change oxygen delivery to the brain to reduce neuronal excitability. You can breathe in a way that you have a deeper sleep, as opposed to mouth breathing and sh- fast shallow breathing, which causes more shallow sleep. Lighter sleep, you're waking up more tired. So the breath, like, you know, it's people come into me with anxiety and they come into me with depression and panic disorder and they've been to cognitive behavioral therapy and they've been to many, many different modalities and the one thing that was often missing was the breath. And what they were often told was take this deep breath, which is entirely the wrong thing to be doing. So the person comes into me with anxiety or panic disorder, somebody is who just suffering from stress, and I look at their breathing, it's always generally fast and shallow and it's irregular. And just by slowing down the breath, by breathing using the diaphragm, by breathing through the nose, and by slowing down the breath even to create a slight air hunger, which increases blood flow to the brain, that we can induce a sense of calm in that individual that that, that person then can carry throughout their everyday life. So for passiveness, say for instance the anapanasati, you're just following the breath in and out. Like it's wonderful, but there is a tendency for the mind to wander. And I don't think as well Vipassana was, was developed two and a half thousand years ago. And society was different back then. And people weren't exposed to the same stresses and strains that now, the competitive culture now is really, really, really strong from kids all the way up, you know, kindergarten kids, um, high school, university, jobs, corporates, multinationals, whatever. That stress is always there. So if we're looking at Vipassana and the whole emphasis of mindfulness is follow your breathing but don't change it, that's not enough. And the reason that it's not enough is because if you have breathing pattern disorders, you need to change that. So if somebody comes into me with anxiety and they just do following of the breath, I'm saying, okay, you're doing absolutely, it's part of the puzzle. But another part of the puzzle is to change your breathing pattern, change the functionality of your breathing. Learn to breathe through your nose, learn to breathe slow, and deliberately change the poor habit in order to increase oxygen uptake and oxygen delivery to the brain. I wonder what Gwenka would say to that. I, I have a feeling that he, he would, would be against it. He would be against yes. it. There's, a, there's an interesting, have you ever heard, I'm, I'm sure you, there'd be no reason that you would. If you would, I'd be very surprised. Uh, there's a guy called Marvin Sullet, and he had a, he came up with a thing called standing awareness. Okay, and I haven't heard of <laughs> There'd be no reason that you would. It'd be ridiculous <laughs> if you did. Uh, but anyway, so he was, he was like a rolfer, and like a body worker, physical therapist type guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, what he would do with people, is that you? I think it is, and I don't know where my phone is. <laughs> it's fine. Oh, it's behind you. That's okay. We're easy on the line podcast. This this fella. Sorry there. Should we yeah, answer? I know. Should don't worry about it. What I'll do is I'll just put it on. <laughs> I actually thought I put it on silence. No <laughs> ring. Yeah. And it's mine, still ringing. No, my, yeah, mine's... So my phone doesn't respect that's me. That's what I don't know how to fix. Um, it's all good, uh, but yeah. So so uh, my ring again. Maybe I just turn it off, huh? Yeah. Let's let's just throw it in the cold plunge. Disregard it, unless it's waterproof, like a um, iPhone. Good mountains. You got um, mountains on the background. That's an interesting it. thing as well. Looking at mountains and how that how that that changes. I want to get back to standing awareness. Sure. But but our vision as well. So you have you have mountains on your cell phone. Um, and that's shown to just having a, a picture on the wall or ideally being able to look out into the distance, you know, mm-hmm. if you're in a, in a hospital situation, mm-hmm. shown to reduce your necessity for any type of pain medications, shown to increase your, uh, or decrease the time that you're, you're, you're stay. Wow. That's so, you know, cool. Getting out sooner. You know, so the breath is also tied to the vision. Um, all of these different indicators, all these, these different senses are all tied directly back to our, our present state. Mm-hmm. But 
that's kind of a separate thing we can mm. get into. The Marvin Sull at Standing Awareness thing, he would have people come in and they would just stand. Mm-hmm. Essentially do like Vipassana. They just stand in place and they kind of have their initial kind of like ego structure of like, okay, this is yeah. this is Patrick standing. Mm-hmm. And then after a little while, the ego structure gets tired. <laughs> sure? It's like, okay, oh, Patrick's shoulder's drooping. You know, oh, now his knee's coming in. Now, whoa, now Patrick's spine is kind of like doing this weird spiral thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wonder, from like a Gwanka perspective, who's like the guy that on the on the you know in the, during the Vipassana, speaking of the discourses, he would say just to watch until you spiral out and your innate healing mechanisms kind of come online. Yeah, it's it's it'll probably work, but it, do people have the time to wait for that to happen? <laughs> you know. And the other thing is, like mindfulness is absolutely and it's absolutely wonderful. Anapanasati, following the breath in and out of the body, bringing attention out of the mind onto your breathing. But how are you breathing when you're walking down the street? How are you breathing when you're in sl- asleep? Like, we have to be looking at everyday breathing. And we have to be looking at the three components of breathing, the biomechanics. And we have to be looking at the biochemistry of breathing. And we have to be looking at the, the psychology of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that making this more complicated for just for the point of being. But I, I will say one thing. I was a mouth breather, breathing through an open mouth for 20 years. Um, I had asthma, so if you have inflammation of the lungs, it travels up to your nose. When your nose is stuffy, you're more likely to mouth breathe. And when you breathe through your mouth, you're twice as likely to have a sleep problem. So here you have somebody with asthma, and we don't know the the incidence of mouth breathing in the population, but we know in children it's as high as 50%. It's well linked with ADD, ADHD, learning difficulties. Children who are mouth breathing, and this goes for adults, of course, as well, are more tired. They're sleepy. Um, they don't have the concentration, they don't have the cognitive awareness. And children in one paper, they have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties due to the problem of mouth breathing during sleep. Now, Vipassana doesn't change that. So that's why we have to look at, we have to, like, this is not two and a half thousand years ago. We have to change breathing to cope with the changes of modern living. And the changes of modern living are very different now. Our food is different, and our environment is different, the competitive stresses are different, and the ideas out there about breathing are different. How many times have we been told to take a deep breath? And it's followed by the person taking a huge inhalation of air into the lungs. We have this belief that the more air we breathe, the better. When in actual fact, the reverse is true. People who are healthy have light breathing. And people who are unhealthy have heavy breathing. Heavy breathing, and the harder you breathe, the less oxygen gets delivered to the cells. And your listeners can practice this, you know. Switch from mouth to nose breathing. Um, breathe light, that you're not taking so many, you know, so much air into your nose. Slow down the speed of breath as it comes in and out of the body. And um, breathe slowly, so you're not taking so many breaths per minute. And breathe deep, so you're activating the diaphragm. So breathe light, slow, deep, or slow, light, deep breathing. And that's one way of improving breathing efficiency by about 20% and improving oxygen uptake in the blood by about 10% and also targeting anxiety, stress, sleep, um, and even improving exercise performance. I wonder, yes. just to play devil's advocate, because yes. I agree 100% with everything sure. you're saying, and I just enjoy playing devil's advocate. Um, if perhaps Vipassana or some, any form of, of downregulation, relaxation, changing the filter you have on the world of being a little bit less panicky, yes. fight, flight, I yes. have to defend my home and my money and my wife and my, oh, my property, you know, I'm getting a little bit like tinfoil hatty, I apologize. But nonetheless, if I was out of that defensive state, that yes. defensive state is representative of, you know, or the mouth breathing is representative of like, 
Yes, 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 yes. You know, so yeah. perhaps there could be some backdoor effect of general yeah. downregulation you know, causing that calmer nose breath. Yes, it's it's very interesting. It's it's been shown mindfulness. You follow your breath for eight weeks, um, the amygdala shrinks, um, the the person is less likely to react, fight or flight. Yeah. And the individual should be calmer. But is it going to change breathing patterns? Um, to give you an example, I spoke at an ear, nose and throat meeting in Madrid National about four months ago. And I had an operation on my nose in 1994 because I had chronic nasal obstruction. And the surgeon never told me to breathe through it afterwards. So I continued mouth breathing even though my nose was fixed. See, once we've developed a habit, when we've developed a breathing pattern, that's likely to remain because if we look at the biochemistry of the breath, the only way to change the biochemistry of the breathing to improve it is to slow down breathing, deliberately slow down breathing over a period of time to change the sensitivity of the body or the brain to just the gas carbon dioxide. So without making it too sciencey, we would generally have people slow down their breathing to create air hunger. And that's not something that you're, you're going to ordinarily do. You're not going to come across it because you don't like that feeling of slight suffocation. Right. But that's what I have the individuals do because we're trying to reverse that. Is there a role for mindfulness? Absolutely. Is it good? It's tremendous. But does it all answer all of the questions with regards breathing? Well, I don't think so. It's inseparable from paying attention to your breath. It is. And, you know, <laughs> you know? totally. Absolutely, yes. And the other thing is increased brain cell excitability, that state of fight or flight, you know, the agitation of the mind from fast breathing. Look at the research by Stanford just down the road in, in terms of put into Google Stanford and slow breathing. And they first identified the structure in the, in the brain in mice and then they, identif they identified it in humans. And you could argue, yes, well, when we meditate, our breathing naturally goes slow. And that's very true, it does. And this is probably one of the reasons that slow, deep, quiet breathing is causing calmness of the mind. But how are you breathing outside of your meditation? That's what I'm concerned with. How are you breathing as you walk down the street? How are you breathing when you go to the gym? How are you breathing when you're watching TV? And how are you breathing during your sleep? Yeah. In my ignorant mind, I feel like, there was some degree of like villainization of CO2 and yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> Can yeah, we talk a little bit about it? Like, yeah, it's kind of strange, isn't it? That the one gas that's responsible for red blood cells releasing oxygen to the cells is considered as a waste gas. Yeah. Well, gotta get it out of there. Get it out. <laughs> Take in as much oxygen as possible and get rid of as much carbon dioxide as possible. It's a waste gas. It's toxic. Ox oxygen is toxic at high concentrations. You know, many people will be familiar with Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder is a blind individual. Um, how did he become blind? Because as an infant, he was given oxygen at 100%. Mm. So oxygen is toxic at high concentrations. The body needs to be in a state of balance. Um, you know, we need a pressure of oxygen in the blood of 100 millimeter of mercury pressure, but we need a pressure of, of carbon dioxide in the blood of 40 millimeter of mercury pressure. And... The concentration of oxygen in our concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is only a fraction of that. So the human lungs holds on to so much more carbon dioxide than what's available in the atmosphere. To give you an example, 0.04% of, of atmospheric pressure is carbon, di carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. 0.04% of 760. And in the lungs it's 5%. So we're talking about so much greater um, the, the amount of carbon dioxide required in the blood. And what does carbon dioxide do in the blood? It's the primary regulator of blood pH, not the food we eat. Mm. You know, so blood pH at 7.365, 
if we're too alkaline at 7.8 we die and if we're too acidic at 6.8 we die and it's our breathing by increasing or decreasing carbon dioxide that's the primary regulator of blood pH. Number two it's a catalyst for oxygen to be released from the red blood cells to the cells. So at the workshop that we were at, um, we measured, you know, people put on pulse oximetry. They looked at what was, how, you know, how much oxygen is in their blood, how much oxygen was carried by hemoglobin, or the fraction of hemoglobin carrying oxygen. And everybody was normal. You know, everybody had almost, they were almost fully saturated with oxygen. The real question is, how do we get the oxygen from the blood to the cells? I see people coming in with chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, high stress, high anxiety, different aches and pains, increased lactic acid. Their blood oxygen saturation is normal. They have plenty of oxygen. But the problem is, the oxygen isn't getting delivered so readily. That's carbon dioxide. So if you slow down your breathing, and as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, because carbon dioxide is the stimulus or the drive to breathe, you feel a slight air hunger, and during that slight air hunger, the increase of carbon dioxide is going to cause the red blood cells to release oxygen to the cells. So the ironic thing is, when we slow down our breathing to the point of a light air hunger, more oxygen gets delivered to the cells than ordinarily. And the third factor about carbon dioxide, it relaxes smooth muscle. So smooth muscle is embedded in the blood vessels. It's very common for people who are hyperventilating or chronically over-breathing to have cold hands and feet. Their per peripheral blood circulation is, is impaired. You know, they get into bed, their partner is moving away from them because their, ha their feet are too cold. They may also have brain fog. So when we start slowing down breathing, blood vessels dilate. So your entire circulation, your entire oxygen delivery, your airways, um, the autonomic nervous system, you slow down the breath with light air hunger, you've got increased watery saliva in the mouth. So here we can change the autonomic nervous system in about four minutes, and it's doing the entirely the opposite to what's typically being taught. And you could ask the question like, well, in yoga, why, why is there such an emphasis on taking big breaths? I think that the message has got lost when it was passed down to telephone wires. I think the innate wisdom of yoga, um, when you look at some of the sayings in terms of man should breathe so smoothly that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move, can you breathe so smooth that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move? That's not implying hard breathing. That's implying light breathing. Um, if we look at Tai Chi, you know, three levels to breathing. Master Chris Pei said the first level to breathing is to breathe so smoothly or to breathe so softly that the person next to you doesn't hear you breathe. The next level of breathing is to breathe so softly so you do not hear your breathing. And the third level of breathing is to breathe so softly so you do not feel your breathing. Because people who breathe light and soft are healthier. And slow breathing and soft breathing and diaphragmatic breathing go together. And in terms of longevity, I don't think it's a coincidence that the animals who breathe the fastest and the hardest are the ones that die the soonest. Mm. Um, if you look at the animals with you know, longevity of several decades, elephants, etc., third ties, they really breathe slow and light. And say a mouse who's breathing fast and, and panting, um, they, they live quite short lives. What do you think of, you know Brian McKenzie probably, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of his, I mean, I don't know if it's his per se, but the, the language of, of conceiving your breath as, as having gears, essentially. So that, that low, not allowing the, the nostrils or that the hairs yes. to, to move. And let, that's like the idle gear that you should be in whenever your life looks like, but a yes, high percentage yes. of the time. Yes. But then having access to like, okay, let's open up the... 
yes. ventilators or whatever. Yeah, I think the analogy is good um, when you're switching from rest to physical exercise and different intensities of physical exercise. Um, I'd go, to, I think the analogy is very good because often people are a little bit kind of apprehensive about switching to nasal breathing fully during physical exercise. What I would say to everybody is do your best to, to maintain nasal breathing during the day but practice changing your breathing patterns during the day because if you adopt efficient breathing during the day, that will translate into efficient breathing during physical exercise. Yeah. Now, we know up to 50% of athletes have dysfunctional breathing patterns, and that's holding them back. In what way? Premature breathlessness, gassing out too soon, muscle fatigue, lower back pain is very common with athletes, and diaphragmatic breathing is, the diaphragm is not just a muscle that's purposes for respiration but it's also for stabilization for, of the spine. It's the support of the spine to help it from, or prevent it from buckling. So, yeah, Brian McKenzie's, um, I think it's a really good analogy. You know, if you're sitting down, you should be pretty much in neutral. Yeah. Um, you're going for a walk into a jog, you're in first gear, and um, keep maintaining nasal breathing. But what I would say to you is that when you breathe through your nose, do make an emphasis of slowing down the, the respiratory rate that you're taking fuller breaths, but not so many breaths, because in terms of breathing efficiency, you will improve your breathing efficiency by about 15 to 20% by breathing slow but deep. So how do you breathe with your nose? And the other thing is, measure your bolt score. You know, what's your breath hold time during rest? Because your breath hold time during rest is, is giving you feedback of the sensitivity of your body to the buildup of carbon dioxide. And if you do physical exercise, your cells are gonna generate a lot of CO2. But what's your sensitivity to the buildup of that CO2? Change it. You know, practice slowing down your breathing, nasal breathing, deep breathing, um, and change your breathing pattern to reduce the sensitivity of the body to the buildup of carbon dioxide. You have got a higher bolt score, and a higher bolt score translates into less breathlessness during physical exercise. So a person out there who's walking along the boardwalk or going for a little jog along the boardwalk and they're really breathing hard, is that due to a lack of conditioning? Or is that due to an oversensitivity to the buildup of CO2? And I want to change the biochemistry of their breathing and the biomechanics of their breathing to make their breathing more efficient. And when your breathing is more efficient, you can do more with less. Yeah. I, <coughs> I don't know if this is actually even accurate, but I learned riding dirt bikes as a kid if you would keep the dirt bike stuck i had i had a little like yz 85 anybody knows what the heck that is and i would ride it around my yard we'd go elsewhere as well but i just want to ride it my yard mm -hmm. is pretty small and you wanted to make sure you got out of first and second gear because you'd eventually burn that gear out yes so it, it feels to me like a lot of people are kind of stuck in that higher revving gear as they're sitting ideally they'd be in neutral you know but yes, they pull yes, their car yes. up at the stoplight the car yes. being their body and they're still revving at 4,000, 5,000 RPM when yes. really, the, yeah. ideally, they were yes. down to 1,500. Yes, yes, yep. That's good. Yeah, it's good. Um, if you look at the literature in terms of the Western population, a Cochrane review in 2013 said that dysfunctional breathing patterns affects 9.5%. But with people with asthma, it increases to 30%. And people with anxiety and panic disorder, it increases to 75%. So within certain pockets of the population, breathing pattern disorders or poor breathing is more prevalent. And if you are in that state of poor breathing, you're wasting oxygen unnecessarily. You're not breathing efficiently. 
Um, and it's almost that you're you're stuck in that four thousand revs. Yeah. Yeah. So is there a place for the nine thousand revs of like Stan Groff stuff or Wim Hof stuff or any you know the, the hyperventilating? <gasps> yeah. Because <gasps> it, it's interesting. It seems almost like some of that what that is replicating is like high, high, high end exhaustive exercise. Yes. Yes. You know. Yeah. Like, what could it be doing? Um, number one, it's it's likely to be a stressor on the body, causing the body to make adaptations, that you're putting the body into a fight or flight response. Um, you're breathing hard, which isn't necessarily increasing oxygen uptake in the blood because your oxygen uptake is already going to be fully saturated. It will increase the amount of oxygen dissolved in the blood. But in terms of carbon dioxide, the hard breathing is getting rid of a lot of carbon dioxide, which cause, is causing the blood to be quite alkaline. And this in turn then is increasing neuronal excitability, it's increasing stress in the body. And that in turn then will cause the body to make adaptations. That you're almost that you're antagonizing the immune system, that you're that the immune system then is better able to cope with um conditions. Such as, for example, one condition that medication targets. And the purpose of the medication is to antagonize that the immune system is rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. And these drugs are very expensive. Um, they cost thousands of dollars every month. They've got huge side effects. And um, could you do the same thing through the breath? So the hyperventilation with Fimhoff, in activating that stress, that fight or flight response, yes, it's got a role there, it's got a purpose. But we have to bear in mind what's actually happening there. Do we fully understand what's happening? Um, Short-term hyperventilation shouldn't have any undue negative effects on the body because as long as you go back to normal breathing every everything should normalize but it would be important for people to realize don't continue doing that um strong hyperventilation because then you're going to really have profound negative effects yeah. so it's like going for a sprint and you're getting the benefits of it but then go back to normal training for a period of time don't overdo it don't overtrain now another thing that could be going on is that you're tr you're training your respiratory muscles because you're really working the breathing muscles hard and you're going to cause them to approach fatigue levels. And with that, then you're adding an extra load and it could be causing, you know, improved diaphragmatic tone. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's got some benefits in terms of a stressor to the body and causing adaptations. And with that, you know, you've got a high, really strong hypoxic effect. So you hyperventilate for 30 breaths and then you breathe out and you hold and you're holding the breath until you feel maybe a medium to strong air hunger. And then you hyperventilate again, you do it, and you do two to three cycles. And during that time, your blood oxygen saturation will drop immensely. Not just severe hypoxia, it's really going into extreme hypoxia. So if you're at that point during a strong breath hold, you're depriving the cells of oxygen. So this will cause adaptations, including increased buffering capacity, possibly in the blood. It will be very interesting to see do Wim Hoffers, do they have an increased aerobic capacity? Do they have increased red blood cells? And I suspect that they do, if they're doing that training regularly. Um, because your body will adapt to that. And if you've got increased red blood cells, it increases your VO2 max. You know, your ability to, to transport and to utilize oxygen during maximum physical exercise. Um, so there's probably a lot more going on in that that needs to be isolated. And the research is, is quite new and, you know, something we've been working with a very similar field. What's the di dis difference between what we do and the Wim Hof method? We do strong breath holdings, 
but we don't do it after hyperventilation. So we have normal breathing, and then we breathe in, breathe out, and we hold. So we cause a hypoxic effect, but we also cause a hypercapnic response. And the Wim Hof is hyperventilation followed by a breath hold. That's hypoxic, hypocapnic. Similarities and differences at the same time. Mm. What about the, the mechanical perspective and, and the effect that breath has on, on strength in the body or, or, or movement of the body? I think it's really important. I think it's been totally underappreciated. Um, it's a field that probably I haven't emphasized enough awareness of on either. Um, intra-abdominal pressure, core strength. Is it due to the strength of the muscles or is it due to the functioning and the firing of the muscles? Where does the diaphragm play the role there? And if you have good intra-abdominal strength, um, you will have good lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs during breathing. So to test it, place the hands at the lower ribs and as you breathe in, you should feel lateral expansion and as you breathe out, you should feel lateral contraction. How many athletes have that? Like we often look at athletes in press conferences, I look at their breathing and I'm looking at fast upper chest breathing and their diaphragm, they're not using it effectively as they, they should be. That's going to affect motor control. That's going to affect muscle fatigue. That's going to cause them to gas out too soon. That's going to cause them to, to waste too much of their oxygen unnecessarily just supporting the breathing muscles. Yeah. We have to look at the quality and we have to look at the role of the diaphragm um, in posture, in spinal stabilization, in movement. Can you have functional movement without functional breathing? And yet, nobody seems to be looking at the breathing in athletes. Very few people. Um, I've looked at Olympic athletes and they have a really poor breathing. And these guys were so resilient and such so driven that they were able to achieve what they achieved. But could they have achieved more with the same amount of effort? Yeah. And I think they could have. What do you think of the, the mechanical effects of the tongue being, or the, the athletic effects of the tongue being on the roof of the mouth? Like there's yes. more esoteric, per se, you call it like completing the microcosmic orbit. Yeah, you yes. Know, yes. So you're yeah. disconnecting yeah. that, yeah. but then it like translates directly into modern day yeah. athleticism yeah. as well. Yeah, I remember I was, at a, I was at a conference in Rome, which was back in 2016. It was a medical conference. And, you know, it was attended by many doctors, orthodontists, pediatricians, etc. And there was an Italian, I'm not sure, I can't, f I can't remember his name. An Italian doctor there, I don't even know what, what his discipline was, he a cardiologist, but he showed a video of a patient walking down the corridor of, of the hospital. And the patient had a very poor gait, very poor walk, very poor mo mobility. And the doctor went over to the patient and asked the patient to put the tongue in the roof of the mouth put the lips together, breathe through the nose, and the video stayed on the patient, and the patient started walking, and their gait improved within 30 seconds. Mm. And I was just looking at this, and I was saying, only for I was in this room with doctors and pediatricians, etc., I couldn't have believed it, because I could never have believed that the tongue was playing such a role in the human body. And I switched to nasal breathing back in 1997, 1998, but when I was a mouth breeder, and all mouth breeders, you'll never have your tongue in the roof of the mouth because you can't have your tongue in the roof of the mouth and at the same time breathe through it. So mouth breeders will always have a low tongue posture. So I had a low tongue posture for 20 years, and this will be neuroplasticity. You develop a breathing, you know, you develop a, a behavioral pattern that even when the, the cause of it has been removed, the pattern is maintained. So I kept on nose breathing from 1997 to 98, 
but I never asked the question, where was my tongue? And Karen Samuel, in 2005, I was in Texas, and this conversation came up, and I said, where should your tongue be? And she said, in the roof of the mouth. And I said, how much of the tongue should be up there? And she said, three quarters of your tongue should be in the roof of the mouth. Then I started placing my tongue in the roof of the mouth. Now, if your tongue is in the roof of the mouth, you're in increasing the space in the airway. So you can think of the tongue. The tongue occupies a lot of space in the mouth. And if you've got a very small mouth, there may not be enough room for the tongue. As a result, the tongue is falling into the throat. And if the tongue is falling into the throat, it's going to affect your athletic ability, but also your sleep, which increases the risk of sleep apnea. So I think it would be very important to breathe through the nose, have the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth both during wakefulness and also during sleep. Your airway, and a good airway is about the size of a tum. It's about the size of a hose pipe, the garden pipe there. Um, we don't have much room for air there. And if the tongue is falling back into the throat, it's going to increase resistance during breathing. And that can cause what's called a, hypo hypo sorry, a hypopnea or it can cause an apnea. And that's putting a lot of pressure on the heart. It's very common in today's Western society. And uh, nasal breathing and correct tongue posture are essential for to help reduce it. Yeah, what about sleep positions? Sleep position, again, like a lot of people will say... For posture, you're better off sleeping on the back, but there is a risk there as well, that yep. if you're sleeping on the back, 50% of people who are prone to sleep apnea, their apnea is doubled when they sleep in their back, by virtue of gravity, that the throat can collapse or the tongue falls into the throat. So we would then tend to emphasize left-hand side or right-hand side position, um, but also to make sure that you have got um, alignment of the spine, that you don't have head tilt, that your head isn't tilting upwards or tilting downwards. So the pillow should be suitably sized so that you've got a perfect alignment, um, almost that your your head and spine and everything is, is in alignment. Because again, if the head is in a head tilt, it also can obstruct airway size. Like if you're looking at Homer Simpson, and look at Simpson when he's snoring, and his head is usually tilted back, and he's gone, yeah. and the airway is totally collapsed pretty well. He's still having some breathing, but the airway is very much restricted due to the head tilt, and yeah. that's true to in humans. It's interesting. You, you've read the book, uh, Shut Your Mouth, Save Your Life. Yes, George yes, of course. I think it's George Kellan. Yeah. yeah, it is, yeah. Um, in that, they talk about Native Americans sleeping on like these wooden-ish boards and propping their heads up a little bit to kind of keep them in that more like neutral position, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to having the Homer Simpson yes, yes. hyper crooked neck there. But then there's a lot of interesting research that shows like like one well, like side sleeping being really beneficial for your body for various reasons. Mm -hmm. The left side being yes. potentially like the, you know, the from reflux, having the most benefits. Yeah. And circulation, lymphatic, lymphatic circulation, blood circulation. Mm -hmm. Um, but within that, it's kind of conflicting a little bit. Like, the, like there's the George Catlin book is saying, okay, this yes. is how Native Americans do that. But then there's other perspectives. I forget the guy's name, Ted Lee. Le I forget his name, physical therapist guy that followed this stuff, wrote a lot of articles and books and stuff about it. Um, looking at different primates and hunter-gatherer tribes and, you know, saying like, yes. oh, they're on their sides. And then this is the last thing I'll say. Um, within that, they found, I think it was with mice, they found that side sleeping was the most effective for moving the glymphatic system. So moving all of the... From the brain, yes. From the yes, brain. Yes, so yeah. while you're sleeping, it's kind of like, I describe it ignorantly again as like douching your brain at night. Mm -hmm. Like you need to, you need every night you got to 
You got to douche it out. Yes, you got to get yeah, out all yeah. the amyloid beta plaque and the stuff. Yes. And apparently, side sleeping is the most effective for circulating that at night. So I'm kind of a little bit torn because I, I did a chapter in the book about it. Sure, you sure. Know, so do you have any? Is it depend by the person? Yeah, it's, you or? know, it's like okay, we always advocated left hand side sleeping. Yeah. Um, okay. The information that we we were using was on the basis of improving lung volume. Mm. Um, that in terms of when you're on your left hand side, well, what actually happens is that you actually breathe lighter than on your right hand side. So mm. for about 20 years, I've been sleeping on my left. But the only problem is that it's changed the shape of my face. <laughs> and if I look at if I look into a mirror, I'm seeing that my left side of my face is is flatter than my right. Oh, and I've had people look at this people in the field. Yeah. So I don't know. Should we be really <laughs> aligned specifically a hundred percent doing one? So if I was you know in the book Oxygen Advantage, I said yeah, left hand side is best. Um, yeah. it reduces look reflux. The stomach valves are more closed. Um, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But maybe we should be doing what is switching positions yeah. at different points that we're not just in the one position all night long. We want to have a deep sleep. And if you have a deep sleep, you're less likely to be moving, twisting and turning all night. Um, but yeah, should we be doing all 100% left? I don't think so. I think we should be switching from left to right. Yeah. What's inspiring for you these days and in your future? At some point, you'd have to get tired of talking about nose breathing, I'd imagine. Or no? Uh, it's it's like this, Aaron. <laughs> nose breathing. I started talking about this in 1997, I knew a little bit of information. Yeah. And the more you look into it, the more information that's out there. And there's right. more science coming out there. You know, there's even papers now showing that nose breathing improves memory. Mm. And, you know, sometimes you'd say, well, what's this? This is a load of nonsense. Um, but we don't know as human beings we, the nose is totally underestimated that's one organ that's there designed to condition breath and how important is breathing for sustenance of human life yeah. you know you can live without food you can live without water um, for a lot longer than you can live without air but yet we never ask the question how should we breathe oxygen is vital but can we change it and what's more the information out there that's being taught in breathing is really, really, sometimes I cringe when I hear it because I'm, you know, and I'm not here to knock anybody, but all I'm here is if you're teaching about breathing, make sure you understand the physiology of what's happening. Make sure you understand about the Bohr effect, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, how oxygen is carried, how oxygen is released, the biomechanics of breathing, because otherwise you can be giving out incorrect information, which can have the opposite effect. Um, so nasal breathing, I think it's we're just in the beginning of it. Yeah. Is there any relevance to understanding something like the Bohr effect for common folks? Yeah, it's very simple. Discovered back in 1904. It basically was discovered by a Danish biochemist called Christian Bohr. And he said that as the partial pressure of carbon dioxide increases in the blood, the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen decreases. In other words, the red blood cells release oxygen when there's an increase of carbon dioxide. Hmm. Now, bear that in mind against the commonly taught expression of take that deep, full breath, because all that's doing is getting rid of carbon dioxide. One big breath will get rid of between 7 to 16 millimeters of mercury pressure of CO2. 30 seconds of hard breathing will reduce CO2 in the blood by half. Let's put this into context. Normal CO2, arterial CO2, is 40 millimeter of mercury pressure. If you do 30 seconds of hard breathing, 
you reduce it from 40 to 20 millimeter of mercury pressure. Every one millimeter drop of CO2 reduces blood flow to the brain by 2%. So 30 seconds of hard breathing causes a reduction of blood flow to the brain by up to 40%. And I was, you know, this struck me back, as I said, as I mentioned at the course on Saturday. I was having an exam back in my early 20s. I was a little bit anxious about the exam. And I took time out just to go for a walk just before going into the exam hall. And during that time out, which was only a few minutes, I really breathed deeply and hard. I took lots of big breaths because I believed that this was going to get more oxygen to my brain. And it had absolutely the opposite effect. I went in lightheaded and dizzy. Mm -hmm. So we want to, you know, what's, that's why I try and get people to, to understand. If somebody's coming into me, the best way to, to understand about breathing is to put it into practice. Breathe through your nose and see does it make a difference in how you sleep. Breathe through your nose during physical exercise and see is your ability to, you know, regulate your breathing, to recover, um, to sustain the effort and to continue with the intensity. Is it easier? Breathe through your nose and slow down your breathing for a period of time and see does it bring calmness to the mind. Slow down your breathing and breathe through your nose using the diaphragm to create air hunger and see can you increase your body temperature? Can you improve your blood circulation? Do a breath hold to open up your nose. You know, we have people, 30% of the Western population have rhinitis. 60 million Americans. The traditional root is, rhinitis is stuffiness of the nose. Um, traditional route is go to the drugstore, get an antihistamine, get a nasal decongestion, and then go to your doctor after some time and get a nasal steroid, and after that then go to your ENT. And of course, if the nose is stuffy, your sleep is absolutely messed up. And if your sleep is messed up and your nose is stuffy and your mouth breathing, it increases anxiety. So it's all intertwined. You can decongest your nose in five minutes from holding your breath. Not suitable if you're pregnant or if you've got cardiovascular issues or serious medical issues. But other than that, take a normal breath in through your nose, normal breath out, pinch your nose, hold your nose, and start walking around holding your breath. And keep holding your breath until you have a medium to strong air hunger. Then let go, but breathe in through your nose and breathe normal for a minute and do it again and do it about five times and you will open up your nose by holding your breath. This was first described in 1923 in a medical paper. And what's more, for those of you who are, you know, with children, look at the journal The Dental Cosmos. Um, this was published back in the early 1900s and you'll see papers on the effect that mouth breathing is having on crooked teeth, yep. setback of the jaws, concentration of children. None of this information is new. Like you talk about nasal breathing, this has been spoken about since the 16th century, but yet it hasn't filtered into everyday life. And it's a little bit like the present moment, you know, present moment awareness has been around thousands of years. But yet, why have we not got it? Why hasn't it become mainstream? You know, where, why are we missing the points here? Why are, we, why are we missing for, people with asthma, 5.6 million people with asthma in this country, why are they going around with their mouths open, just as I did? Um, and people with asthma have poor sleep. And, you know, we really need to be connecting it. If we have anxiety, panic disorder, asthma, um, inability to do physical exercise, etc. Due to poor breathing, let's look at changing breathing. Mm. What about um, breathing?
breathing into the bag when you're having a panic attack. Yes, of course. Yeah, it is actually because it's based on carbon dioxide. So people got relieved because if they were going into a hyperventilation attack, they were blowing off too much carbon dioxide. Mm. And the loss of carbon dioxide was causing blood flow to the brain to reduce and also less reduced or reduced oxygen delivery to the brain. And then the brain was getting starved of oxygen and you were feeling suffocated so you'd breathe even harder again. So the paper bag was there to place it around the mouth and nose to trap the carbon dioxide coming from the lungs, to breathe it back into the lungs, to increase it in the blood, to increase blood flow to the brain and oxygen delivery to the brain. However, you don't need a paper bag, it's not safe. If you're using a paper bag, just use a few a few breaths and then breathe normal. Instead, cup your hands. Why is so, it safe? Because your oxygen levels can drop as well. So if you were if you continued breathing indefinitely into the bag, you're not replenishing your oxygen. So your carbon dioxide levels are increasing, but you're not replenishing with oxygen. Whereas if you cup your hands, you're able to pull carbon dioxide into your hands, but oxygen as well is able to get in through the fingers. Mm. Um, now, at the same time, I'd be more interested, why did that person have the panic attack? Yeah, right. It, it's not the stress. The stress isn't the issue. The real issue is, what's their everyday breathing like? You know, if we're in a state of chronic hyperventilation or breathing pattern disorders, it's almost that we are teetering on the brink of symptoms. And it doesn't take a whole lot to push us over. Um, I remember just a short while ago, I had one guy, I can't remember, it's actually, yeah, New York, we had one guy in, and he was an elite athlete, and he competed nationally here for the United States. He overdid it, and he developed chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. His body system shut down. Mm. He had so much lactic acid if he was going for a walk. Now, people will say, well, what's the cause of that? And probably nobody really knows, but one plausible theory is hyperventilation in the long term due to stress, causing the body to deplete buffering capacity. With reduced buffering capacity, the body isn't able to, to you know, with the hydrogen ion coming from the muscles, doesn't get oxidized or doesn't bind with bi- but bicarbonate. Um, and as a result, it's increasing lactic acid because the excess of hydrogen ion is going to associate with pyruvic acid and that in turn is going to form lactic acid. So I think, you know, with people with chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, poor resilience, we have to be looking at the role that hyperventilation has pro- played there. This was first discovered back in the, the American Civil War and I can't remember the exact dates. Was it the 1870s or thereabouts? But there was a military physician called Da, D.A. Costa, and he noticed that soldiers returning from the front line, they had symptoms of fatigue, of breathlessness, um, and other different symptoms. But it took them a long, long time to recover. And he called it the Costa Syndrome. But the Costa Syndrome was then changed into hyperventilation syndrome in 1937. And then it was changed into breathing pattern disorders, dysfunctional breathing in the 1900s into the 2000s. So this is a history, a long, long history in this country. And yet, we're not aware of it. Hmm. The tongue, we'll wrap up here a little bit, is the, is the tongue, be accurate to describe the tongue, it's, it's a lot of things, but it, it seems like it's, it's like a retainer for your, your yes. jawline in a sense. Yes, and especially for children. Hmm. Um, because when we're growing up as kids, especially during critical growth periods, we need to have the lips together, but the tongue resting into the roof of the mouth. And the tongue is you when it's wide. Yeah. So the growing child, the pressures exerted by the tongue is driving the jaws forward and the face. But they're also helping to shape the top jaw, the maxilla. 
and a forward forward growth of the jaw increases the size of the airway and also um, more likely to have over not overcrowding of teeth but more likely to have straight teeth but it's not just about the teeth a beautiful face because if you look at really um, you know beautiful looking faces and you look at the width of the face and you look at the width of the jaws and you look at the forward growth of the jaws it's no coincidence that a functional face is also a beautiful face yeah. and that's influenced by our breathing during childhood now there are many orthodontists aware of this but many are not um, one, one orthodontist is Dr. Bill Hang from Agora Hills here in California and I met him 13, 13 years ago or so and we spoke and spoke and here's an orthodontist that when he looks at, at a person he's not just looking at the teeth he's looking at the airway in actual fact he's fascinated by airway and that's the way all orthodontists should be straight teeth don't create a beautiful face but a beautiful face will create straight teeth yep. and any parent that's going to an orthodontist if the orthodontist is uh, insisting on getting two or four teeth removed, please get a second opinion. You've got 32 teeth. That your every tooth that's in our head is very important for helping to ensure our airways are sufficiently large enough. If we have extractions and if the jaws are pulled back, it's the airway that's compromised. Mm. And if the airway is compromised, our sleep is compromised, and then our quality of life is compromised. So we may, you know, as a result of extractions and e retraction, we might have a beautiful smile, but we might live 20 years less than what we should have. Because we're closing down exactly. space in the nasal yeah. passage. And if you look at, you know, the relationship between sleep apnea, and all you have to do is Google it, sleep apnea and dementia, sleep apnea and type 1 diabetes, sleep apnea and high blood pressure. Um, sleep apnea is, is really going to, you know, be one of those conditions that's, it's, it's so prevalent at the moment. You know, you could say almost half of all men over 50 years of age, 50%. It generally, it's about 30% of the population. Um, it increases as we get older. And one of your Stanford medical doctors, Dr. Christian Gimeno, who coined the phrase sleep apnea back in the 1970s, he's writing papers about the critical importance of nasal breathing during childhood. It also applies to adults. So here you have the founding father of sleep medicine talking about the critical importance of breathing through the nose for correct sleep. And it's, it's really great because it's a, it's, there's an awareness there from an authority figure that the nose is not just the two holes in the face. Yep. The nose is there to serve a purpose. And uh, let's pay attention to our breathing and to make sure we're using it. And it's not only breathing, it's also chewing. Chewing as well, of. yes, absolutely. Because the development of the muscles of the face are going to be you know, influenced by the food that we're eating. Um, even as adults, you know, uh, what did our ancestors eat? Not smoothies. No, not smoothies. <laughs> yes, <but laughs> there were no uh, you know, and even like if it was, say, for instance, fruit and vegetables, etc. But meat and very tough meat, yeah. and meat that we were forced to grind. Whereas everything now is already chewed for us. You, you know, you, you go down to In-N-Out Burger, for example. Your your burger is already chewed. It doesn't take much effort. Right. Um, everything is chewed. Nowadays, we're not doing that. And if you went into a history museum and look at the shape of the skulls there. You, both male and female, you'll see really forward growth, strong jaws. 
and uh, we've lost this. And I know sometimes people will criticise the likes of Dr. Weston Price. He documented this back in the 19, 1938, and he said that the shape of the face is changing, teeth are becoming crooked, and he put it down to processed diet. And people said, well, the way he collected his information wasn't scientific enough. He took lots of photographs and he validated the information as best he could according to the scientific norms of that day. Their observations are also important. Yeah. And observations, when you see a change in first generation children as a result of a switch to a processed food, what is going to happen? Second generation, third generation and fourth generation. And we're already into third and fourth generation. What's happening? I thought it was interesting as well, the effect of coming off of a mother's nipple to going onto a bottle yes, instead. Yes, yes. The activation of the buccinator muscles yes. and kind of pulling you into that gaunt facial yes, 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 structure. Yeah. Whereas whereas the, the, the part of sucking on your mom's nipple for all sorts of nutritional reasons, but also yes. from, a, from a mechanical perspective, yes. is literally a part of your evolution yes. as a human being. Yes, yeah, totally. Like the, the baby latches onto the breast, um, the breast is breastfeeding, and it, it's the work involved for that baby to draw the milk from the mother, the, the muscles of the face are really getting a workout, yeah. and it's helping to develop good facial tone. And look at children, you know, go, go out onto the street, look at the kids that are there with their mouths hanging open they don't have the muscle support to keep the mouth closed these kids are not going to thrive yeah. um, you know one paper there's so many papers now looking at this in terms of the effect of mouth breathing craniofacial development ADHD etc um, 1 in 10 American children at the moment autism behavior problems ADD ADHD what's going on yeah cool man Thank you so much. Last thing that's popping up is as a, you don't need to respond to this or whatever because we got we got to wrap up. But it seems as though, kind of in a similar way that we're putting all this focus on just individual parts. You know, like the, like you mentioned, like the car and like the you know your status and the clothing that you're wearing. We're focusing on these isolated parts that to identify ourselves with. It's a similar way that we do physically. We identify ourselves with our biceps and our pecs and our abs facial sure. muscles is just not even a thing sure sure and you also the, mus the muscles <laughs> for most people the muscles of the throat right you know those muscles of the throat which are designed to keep the airway open during sleep yeah who's working out those right exactly or your hips and so, sure. so it seems like from just as a as a, a um, symbol or a, a, it's analog to our body the in more intricate parts that people don't notice and don't see it's mm -hmm. kind of similar to like that that mindfulness component yeah totally joy moeller is here based here in california and she does exercises for the muscles of the face mm. and she often calls it um my facelift my cosmetic facelift but it's without surgery yeah because again you're utilizing and functioning improved functioning of the muscles of the face which leads to better muscle tone and as a result, it's going to reduce, say, wrinkles, etc., yeah. turkey neck, etc. Cool. Yeah. Where do people go from here? Where do they learn, learn more? Um, we have a website with a lot of resources. It's called oxygenadvantage.com. And we have a YouTube channel with a lot of videos. And I have different books. I've got one book that's quite popular. It's called The Oxygen Advantage. And I've a TED Talk as well and different things. You know, there's exercise out there that people can practice for themselves. I'd say go to the TED Talk because I got the audience to slow down their breathing mm. and also to hold their breath to open up their nose because I wanted them to feel it and to experience it. So if you want to try it, as I said, 
not all breathing exercises are the same. Um, you should get benefits when you change your breathing pretty quickly. And uh, try these ones. Cool. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, I man. really, I really appreciate you coming in. You have a like this um, youthfulness, youthful energy to you that I really appreciate. Cool. Kind of caught me off guard in a good way. Like you're like bright. <laughs> Great. That's not very Thanks. common. Yeah, it's a feel more, more often have kind of this like weighed down type sensation as you came in. It was like, it's good. I appreciate it. Good stuff. All right, cool. Thank you, man. Wrap it up. Over now. Pew. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I want to present y'all with a fun opportunity of starting a program that I created called the Align Method Online Program that focuses on unwinding the unsightly patterns of staring into technology, essentially. So forward head posture, rolled forward shoulders, hyperkyphotic spine, disengaged glutes, knees collapsing in. If there's collapse in any level in the body, it will trickle up and down through the rest of the system. That program focuses on unwinding those things, giving you self-care practices, movement practices, and lifestyle adjustments, very subtle ones, that will give y'all more flexibility, more strength, more confidence, more energy, all the good things. Um, And you can start the first week absolutely free and just go to alignpodcast.com slash align method, A-L-I-G-N method. Along with that guy, you will receive the Align Band, which is a heavy-duty resistance band with a door anchor. And that also comes with its own online program that is free with that thing. Go to alignband.com and start that program for free. Um, I think that's it. I so greatly appreciate you guys listening to this conversation. So greatly appreciate reviews on iTunes, sharing uh, on the Instagrams or the Facebooks or wherever you do your shares. Uh, this program goes on lives on because of y'all so um it doesn't go unnoticed thank you for listening thank you for reviews thanks for joining your life enjoy